Welcome to The Mental Arts, where we look beyond the belt to uncover what it truly means to be a martial artist. I'm your host, Tracy Huang. In this episode, I chat with Cody Malte about one of our favorite books, The Art of Learning by Josh Waitzkin. Now, here's the show. The Art of Learning is a book about the pursuit of excellence, a book about my life, my careers in chess and the martial arts. But more than anything, it's about a love for the process. One of my biggest interests over pretty much the entirety of my life has been you know, human performance across multiple domains. And I think, you know, Josh Waitzkin's thinking and, and his influence over me has probably been the biggest influence in terms of somebody as like a writer. So a lot of his thought process has influenced me a lot. It's something I've spent a lot of time with and it's something I enjoy talking about and I enjoy talking about with like my students a lot. I always like to, you know, refine those thoughts better and deeper and kind of go back through the same stuff again and, and revisit it. That makes sense. I know like when I was doing some research, oh, there's my cat. I was doing some research about the school and stuff and I noticed that you had a reading list, which like Jeff Shaw also mentioned and, and, and then the reading list got condensed down just to Josh's book. And I was like, okay, this is clearly like a really good thing. We're on the same page with regards to how important the book is. I've only read it like 1.5 times. I know you said you've read it like at this point probably dozens of times. Is there anything that makes you like keep coming back to it again and again? One of the biggest things that I've kind of figured out over the years of my journey is that I was always somebody who like wanted to take in information and I was always looking to like learn from others and, and shorten up my journey that way. Through my military training, there's kind of a quote that's a big one in the Marine Corps of, you know, we have 3,000 years of recorded history. So in whatever field you're a professional, there's no excuse to not have a 3,000-year-old mind. And, and it's something that, you know, the Marine Corps takes very seriously and that I latched on to right away. Initially, I was just reading anything. And I went to the major that was in charge of me at one point, and I was kind of looking for like a pat on the head that I was reading a book above my level. I was reading a book that was kind of intended for colonels. And he's like, that's nice, but you're like, you're not ready for that. You need to read the right books at the right time. And so that became like a big guiding force for me of like, okay, well, let's start focusing on material that's very relevant to where I am, mm -hmm. not trying to read above my level. So, but I was still taking in a lot of stuff and I was still basically, you know, there was just a lot of input in my life through all sources. And then through the works of Josh Waitzkin and also Nassim Taleb, they, they kind of pursue parallel thoughts of reading a book a second time is more valuable than reading a different book a first time, if you're reading the right books. You know, Josh Waitzkin, who, like I said, has has this huge influence on me, he is not widely read. Like he does not read a ton of stuff. Like he, if you hear him talk, he talks about the same books over and over and over. Like huh. he's basically read a ton of Hemingway, a ton of Eastern philosophy, 
very little like if you look at like the you know ceo list of like the 20 hot books in 2020 i guarantee josh has read zero of them you know what i mean like he does not pursue the trends but i noticed that among high performers one thing that i really liked was rather than them constantly looking for that breadth they got a lot out of a little bit of material so you know by going back and visiting these books over and over i constantly am able to you know take a little bit more out of them and because josh's book covers so much that's applicable to me it's something that i'm able to like keep going back and kind of level set and get back to like my ideal philosophy of how i want to teach and how i want to perform as an athlete and kind of all those things together you know before my goals you know because that's where i was at in my life my goals were purely selfish everything was around my own fight career and there was things that i knew were going to trickle over to when i transitioned into coaching but everything was focused around like how can this apply to me as a fighter and how can i put this into my own experience and now i look at it so much more of helping students along in their journeys and i think one of the toughest things to do as a coach is translate your experience back to somebody because they don't have you know at this point i have 16 years of just looking at jiu jitsu training 16 years and so when i'm talking about jiu jitsu it's very hard for me to pull a lesson out in isolation that doesn't also include all 16 years of that experience being able to reflect back on where students are at in their learning process and what blocks they need at what times and what are the pieces that are the smallest piece that will then allow them to go forth and learn because i don't want my students to take 16 years to understand as much about grappling as i do i want them to understand that faster i want it to be a more efficient process and a more enjoyable process you know what i mean i just want them to consistently have a better experience than i did by revisiting that material i'm able to look at it through different lenses and and look at it through the experience of like okay you know for the individuals who have joined the academy in the last 6 months and are coming into this you know the academy now is not like it was 5 years ago when there was only 10 students we're we're a very different place and so how am i translating that experience to that new people and how am i giving them those blocks early on and consistently making it something through their learning process so you're so the school's a different place the students that come in are always different you're in a different place also i hear this theme of like there's really some like universal quality to how Wayskin describes like human performance and learning. Mm-hmm. So what are like some of the themes that you see in the, in the book that you particularly valuing right now at this time and place? So the number one thing Josh talks about it through a lot of different lenses. But at the end of the day, his personal philosophy and this is something that resonates with me a lot. So I I, I agree with it. I it's you know my own belief that I share with him. which is that the true peak performance for any individual has to resonate with what's inside them and has to become an expression of that. At the highest highest level, you have to be incredibly authentic in how your performance in any domain is expressing you as an individual. And for people who are high energy or outspoken or, you know, natural performers, there has to be an element of that in in how you build yourself over time. for people who are, you know, more that like introspective engineer mindset, that has to come to the forefront. And so with my students, I try to give them a lot of latitude. I try to disconnect them a lot from 
holding myself or some of the other high-level students up as the example that they should be following. And instead, I try to get them to sample from a really wide variety of sources to find what resonates with them, to look at different athletes across multiple domains and, and see you know, who resonates with them and they can try to build some of that into their game so that they're following along a path. And then at a certain point, they become you know, very individualistic. You know, looking at the students that I have had longer, one thing that stands out is there's very little overlap of the skill sets and mindsets that they've developed. And instead they're all on very individual paths and they all do things very, very differently because we try to build that into the program. Of the program gives you base level skills and then the ability to express that individuality. What if I don't know who I am? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's, I think that's the big question, but that's also the value of pursuing high level performance within an individual domain. And I think specifically what people constantly refer to as that like spiritual journey of the martial arts and, you know, the unique benefits of martial arts, whether you believe that or not. And, but that's where over time, pursuing performance is going to start stripping away and helping you find more of that essential core. It gets taken a little bit too far of like the worship of black belts and that kind of stuff, because once again, <laughs> black belts are just humans with a lot of the same you know, flaws. But I think having gone through that journey, a lot of people find out a lot about themselves and, and you find a level of like calm and ability to express yourself a little more authentically. Ideally, if you've done it the right way, if you've taken on the right challenges at the right time, and so I think that's that's part of the journey as well. You know what I mean? I don't expect that blue belts or even purple belts or even, you know, when I got my brown belt, there was a massive shift between when I got my brown belt and, you know, the, the jiu-jitsu orthodoxy says, when you get your brown belt, you've learned everything you need to know. Now you just need to become a master of the best stuff and that'll make you a black belt. And that was great. I got my brown belt and then I didn't even get another stripe for like three years, I think. And I was a two stripe brown belt in 2012 and I didn't get a stripe again until like 2014 and I went to Vegas and just got my butt handed to me every single day for a long time I had to evolve and grow a ton and become completely different you know I don't expect people to like have that journey finished of like oh I've been training six months I know exactly who I am and now I'm going to express that for the next decade it's like no 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 we're all in this process together and I'm sitting here, you know, I've got a, I've got a new student who moved down to the area and in no way is he special or an outlier. The only thing that you can highlight about him that is special is that he was very consistent in his training for five straight years. So for five years, he trained beginners and advanced class every single night, five days a week at the academy he attended. And he is one of the most phenomenal grapplers I've trained with. And he is only a brown belt. I'm a black belt. I've been a black belt for, I've been a black belt for longer than he's been training jujitsu. He's my size. And he hands me my lunch every single night at the academy. Wow. Every single night. I have yet to tap him out, even in training. And he doesn't train hard. He's, he's relaxed and chill. I've never tapped him out. He taps me out every single round we roll. And it's a blast for me. But I'm still, you know, sitting here, I go home at night and I'm like, okay, I need to evolve. I need to grow. There, there needs to be something added to deal with this. So that's why the journey is still fun for me. Is I'm not a finished product. I have more thoughts and conclusions than I had 16 years ago about who I am and how I want to continue to grow and develop. But I also know that I'm going to need to. And I also know that there's this guy who's been training a third of the time that I have who just handles me. You know what I mean? And it's, it's hilarious. Like I just... I laugh so hard about it and I love it because 
I get to reference him all the time when he's sitting there in class and I'm teaching and I get to tell the blue belts like, hey guys, this is my theory, but just keep in mind when I try this against Robert, he's gonna tap me out. You know what I mean? He has a say too. <laughs> so it's a lot of fun, you know, continuing to grow. But I think that's what we're all trying to do is like, okay, cool. Let's, let's stay on this journey. Let's keep evolving. Let's keep growing into, you know, something new and different. What do you think has been the greatest challenge or opportunity that you faced, you know, while teaching at the school? Does Waitskin offer any kind of wisdom about that? The biggest challenge, you know, so the academy is going to have been open five years in a couple weeks. So we'll, we'll hit our five-year anniversary. And the biggest challenge for me has been the balance of competing interests because I, I do have a full-time job and I have the academy. And I have my family at home. I have a daughter who's about to turn six. You know, it's been interesting, you know, learning to find that balance and learning to ride that wave. So much of what, you know, I've taken away from reading Josh Waitzkin and, and listening to him talk and, and meeting him in person is that one, you have to let how you do one thing help you learn the next thing. So rather than saying, okay, this is my family time, and this is my time at my job, and this is my time at the academy, like, I have to take lessons from my job and apply them at the academy. And I have to take stuff I do at the academy and apply it back to my job and vice versa in a positive way of like, okay, I have to constantly be learning and adapting in these different settings and then taking those learnings and applying them. And by applying lessons across domains, I can really speed up my growth and my own learning process. So like taking what I've learned as a father and applying it to my students and vice versa, taking what I've learned from coaching and applying it to talking to my daughter and learning when she's thriving versus when she's shutting down and how to reach her in those moments and, and all those things. And then also the biggest thing that Josh does very differently than me that I try to take a lot of inspiration from is he is such a master of creating empty space in his life. And he has a brain that does things that very few other humans can do. And as a result, there's a lot of stress with that. When he's performing at a high level, it takes a big tax on him. And so he's learned how to shut down and recover in a really cool way. And when you see how much he keeps empty space on his calendar as a way of life, it's very inspiring to me. And I always remember that with an academy with you know 150 people, fighters competing all the time, there's always stuff, there's always more I can be doing. And at work, at Cisco, I can always be learning more. So there's never a time where there's not competing interests for my time, but learning how to slow down and create that empty space that allows me to actually achieve peak performance. Because when I get to the end of the day and I've gone back to back to back to back to back to back, my quality of coaching just goes down. My, my quality of interactions with my family goes down. And then everything's in a, a negative place. I'm able to maintain that, that space and hold that space and, and truly stress and recover. Then I notice that all of a sudden the quality of class that I teach goes way, way up. And my ability to interject the right thought at the right time to unlock something for a student increases or just being present in that moment so they feel cared for, so they feel seen increases when I'm creating that space. So I think that's the thing is the challenge has been finding the time and, and always feeling like I can do more. And the refrain that I come back to all the time is, okay, you know, I'm going to create 
a small amount of really high quality things in my life. And that's what I'm gonna to seek to do across all domains. Is if I'm gonna do it, I wanna do it to the best of my ability. And if I can't, I need to prioritize and take things out so those few things that I do can be really high level. After a tournament, he was just so burned out. And this was when he was a kid and his dad just like took him to the ocean for, I guess, like two weeks a week. And then he came back and he said he just felt like so much better about himself and that he didn't think about chess at all. Then once again, when he, I think he was, he was he was in like Europe and he was just like in this village that had like no contact with a lot of people. And I was like, well, part of me wants to be like, gosh, that might have worked for Joshua Skin. And that <laughs> might even work for Cody. But will it work for me? Because I have been, uh, let's just say, conditioned or taught or maybe have just decided to absorb that culture of this is like a relentless cycle that deserves no pauses. What would be your response to that? So this is my favorite subject to talk about, but I'll, I'll get into it. This is where I took the lesson from. So one of my mentors, basically, he said, you're ready for this, go to a 10-day silent meditation retreat. Vipassana meditation is basically just sitting in silence, no movement, and just noticing sensations. And that's basically all you're supposed to do. That 10 days in silence, no working out, no eye contact, no anything, that's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And, I, and I've done some things that on paper seem pretty tough. But that 10 days of silent meditation was the hardest thing for me. And the biggest thing that I took away from it was how much my own sense of self-worth was tied to accomplishment. I had to have something to hang my hat on. And so if I finished the day and I said, cool, I did two hours of jujitsu today, then I got, a, I got a gold star for myself internally. And I realized that my whole life and a lot of my happiness was determined by those gold stars that I was giving myself, mm. right? So I, I had created this internal locus of control and I was giving myself happiness. And it was awesome because I could give myself that dopamine. All it took was discipline. The only thing I needed was the discipline to do the thing. And then I got the gold star and then I could go on with my day. And so it, it felt amazing, right? It was this incredible thing to constantly, it's a never ending renewable resource of like, and then you realize that you've created a life where you're tied to that gold star. And then you realize that becomes the thing that traps you. You know what I mean? Mm. And it's, it's nice, you know, and you can achieve some great things, but man, you know, for most of my athletes that I choose to work with, I very rarely put a lot of time and effort and energy into athletes that I have to push forward. But there's a lot of athletes, all the athletes that I work with, I spend much more time pulling them back, sending them text messages to remind them to eat and to rest and to take a break. Because of that, you know, with high performers, you get stuck on this this wheel of like, I can do a little more. And if I put in that extra time, that's great. And there's always these competing mindsets of, you know, like David Goggins is, is really popular right now. And, and Jocko is really popular. And these guys who are all saying like, why aren't you waking up at 4 a.m.? Why aren't you running 20 miles before the day starts? Like drop and do a hundred pushups. And there are some people that constantly need that push to get the right amount of work done. 
But what I find much more often is most people don't need that. Most people need focused time to stress their body in a positive way, but they need so much more recovery. Over and over and over again, I find that when people do take that break and go to the ocean like Josh did for a couple weeks, they come back and their performance is better. You know, I push my athletes hard, 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 hard. For the athletes that have high level goals, practicing with me is very, very tough. And I always notice when I pull the chain back and give them a break after an appropriate level of stress, I get something better on the other end. It's, it's a very quantitative and qualitative difference of them improving by not just hammering themselves into the ground over and over and over and over. You can't find a high performer that didn't work hard. It's, it just doesn't exist. But it's also very intoxicating to follow like that Dan Gable model. And Dan Gable became very famous for his work ethic. And he was incredible and he accomplished some incredible things. He also won a gold medal at the age of 23 and then retired from athletics at 23 and then had multiple hip replacement surgeries. And the United States in the wrestling program and how wrestlers train has had to unlearn so much of what Dan Gable preached to finally start winning at the international level, to create athletes like Jordan Burroughs who can win in their 30s. Because running yourself into the ground every day is not a long-term prescription for peak performance. Can you give me your definition of what you think peak performance is? Performance is just the combination of the quantitative and qualitative outputs of what you're doing. Depending on your domain, that can be very binary. It can be wins and losses. It can be literally, if you're talking, you know, max deadlift, well, five more pounds is five more pounds anywhere in the world. You know what I mean? If we're talking 100 meter sprint, then a tenth of a second is a tenth of a second is a tenth of a second. We can measure those things very easily. The problem is, especially in artistic domains, is that people look for the quantitative when they need to relax into the qualitative. And I think that's one of the things that Eastern philosophy imparted so much to Josh Waitzkin about is we have to be okay that a lot of this stuff is alchemy and there is no formula and there is no measurable output. You have to embrace the uncertainty and follow that inner locus of control to find what truly feels like performance to you. When you hit that and you resonate with it, and you feel it, you know, it's, it's a very powerful thing. Peak to me is something that cannot be held. So because of fight camps, you know, everything always breaks out in like eight week cycles. You can't hold fighters at a peak for a long period of time. It's, it's literally impossible. And every single time you try to do it, you get injured. You have to very methodically peak them at the right times. So typically over an eight week camp, you'll see one peak happen about three to four weeks out and then the fighter will be in a horrible mood and things will bottom out for about two weeks and then they come up to their true peak for the fight and that's a pretty consistent recipe and, and you can play around with that different ways a lot of strength and conditioning coaches that i respect would basically say you have four to five max efforts a year like true maxes the, the true ability to recruit every single fiber of your central nervous system to hit max performance and so if you try to max out 10 times a year, you're never going to hit a true max. There has to be rest, recovery. There has to be a valley before you can go back up to the peak again. That pattern plays itself out in nature over and over and over and over again. 
And so we have to embrace that in our lives as well. This temporary moment of high level is that peak and performance is embracing the, especially the qualitative aspect of our actual ability for output. So peak performance is finding that moment. It's the constant journey and tinkering to find out how we can hit a higher peak. With fighters, it's amazing to watch because you get them ready for their first fight and they're in better shape than they've ever been in their life and they're feeling good. And as a coach, you're just laughing. They're just, they don't have an idea where the journey's gonna go. And then you get them ready for their 10th fight and they're in shape that they've, you know what I mean? Like comparatively, it's just unbelievable the difference. And then you get them ready for their 30th fight. You just watch these levels of what a true peak is. Dustin Poirier is a great example. He just won a really big fight. Watching his journey over the years from being a young, super talented kid, there was no doubt when he was on the regional scene that he was gonna go to the UFC. But then watching him, you know, go from like, ah, good UFC fighter to, and just climbing the ranks and going through hard times. And then now looking at where he's at, he, he, you know, he's truly one of the top five in the world at the toughest weight class in the world. And he's still getting better. He's still having better performances. He's still growing. And so it's like, okay, well, his peak performance when he was 23 is nothing like what he is now. Like he would destroy that version of himself. He was in phenomenal shape. He was doing all the work. So he was investing in hitting a, a peak for that moment. But in going to that peak performance, he unlocked another level. He unlocked another level beyond that, beyond that. As you invest over time in that process of finding a peak, a lot of times you unlock the next level. And I think that's one of the things I look at as a coach is not only are we peaking, but is our peak consistently increasing? Are we, are we moving in a better direction? So it's a very tough balance. We have to be very true to our strengths, be aware of our natural talents, the flavor of our game, because I think at the highest level, an artist to express himself or herself needs to be as unobstructed as possible in the way they express themselves through their art. And on the other hand, we have to be willing to let go of our strengths and work on our weaknesses. First of all, talking about peaks and valleys, one thing that's super key to recognize is that valleys don't inherently feel good. If you're judging yourself based on the level of cardio shape that you're in, but you need to let your body get a little bit deconditioned so it can heal, so you can move back up to that next peak. People who only want that gold star of like, oh, I did X and felt like I was in good shape doing it, to all of a sudden not get that gold star, it requires recalibrating. So we have to, that's where we have to change that judging focus of like, I wanna be in the best shape all the time. It's like, cool, well, you're never gonna hit a true peak. So if I'm truly trying to get up high, I need to embrace the low part as part of the process and not put like a, a qualitative judgment on that. So yeah, embracing that valley is super important. Understanding that it's part of the whole thing. Beyond that, one thing that always stands out to me when I read Art of Learning is that you read about Josh's process and it's like, man, this process sounds so good. It sounds so healthy. It sounds like it's very obvious why he got good at things quickly, right? And then there's the point, he's talking about doing his push hands practice before he even takes it to the martial aspect. And he says that he was in class with one of the greatest masters in America of this art. And he was doing the class alongside 20 other people, but they weren't doing the same class as him because they were completely internally focused, right? 
they were just looking at themselves in the mirror and they're like, I think I look cool. But Josh is watching the instructor and allowing his body to mirror those postures. And he's taking on all these hidden lessons. Once again, because he allows open space, because he cultivates presence as a way of life, his practice is different than other people's practice. The level of intentionality behind his practice is different. When you hear him doing it, it's like, okay, why wouldn't, yeah, this is just what practice is. And it's like, no, 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 we have to have that presence. We have to have that focus. And it's like, okay, why did he go into the martial aspect of Tai Chi? He was hesitant to do it because he didn't want it to go sour like chess had for him. The challenge for him was taking that newfound peace and intentionality and mindset and being able to maintain that calm while somebody's coming to take his head off. And that's the thing is, you know, when we're practicing day in and day out, are we curious? I talk about it in terms of color codes, which is a, a military thing. If you're code white, you're basically just oblivious to the entire world around you. If you're code yellow, you're like generally open, looking for information. If you're orange, you've identified a specific threat. If you're red, you're like 100% locked on. That's basically like being in a firefight. And then black is when you get too excited and you go completely offline. After a fight, when somebody comes off the out of the cage and I'm like, hey, what about this? And they're like, I don't remember anything. They went to black. When we're in practices, are we in that yellow orange zone of being playful and intentional and relaxed in our training? Or are we in that red zone of like trying to kill them and rip their arm off? Or are we so overwhelmed that day that we're black and we don't remember anything? This is something I've had to develop more as a coach than I did as a fighter. I can basically recite an entire role move for move after it's happened. So after the role's done, I can tell my students like, okay, we were in this position, you had your hand here. This is exactly where your grip was. This is why the grip wasn't as functional as it could have been. These are three other options you could have pursued. Like it always blew my mind. I had a coach, Pancho Feliciano in California, and he was like a truly doctorate level understanding of jujitsu where he could watch somebody at a tournament for 30 seconds and tell you what their entire game was. Wow. He's like, he's, he's like, this is his body type and this is how he moves. So these are the moves he's going to try to do. And this is how it's going to work out. And he would always come to me afterwards and he'd be like, oh, you played the wrong game. And I didn't understand it at the time because I was, I was early in my journey. But now I can do the same thing. Like I, I look at guys at tournaments and I know exactly how they're going to play and I know exactly what they're going to do. And I know what my students need to do to counter that game. And it still comes down to execution but my brain just processes those things a lot faster. So I can see the game ahead of time because I've spent so much time doing that, doing tape breakdowns and breaking down opponents and understanding, like learning martial arts, trying to learn it from each martial arts perspective. Mm -hmm. Like rather than learning wrestling as a jujitsu person, like learning wrestling for wrestling, learning judo for judo. And when you understand how these arts approach the art, when you understand why striking in karate is night and day different from striking in Muay Thai, and you understand the history and why they do these things, you start understanding how they practice, what skills that makes you good at, what skills that makes you weak at, and you can start building those things over time and analyzing people very quickly. How do we bring that intentionality to practice? We have to stay in the zone where our brain is on and where there's intention. And it's like, whether it's doing art, like, are you literally writing down an intention before practice? 
I talk about that with my students all the time. If you just come to practice and do practice, that's great. Practice is fun, but you're leaving a lot of money on the table versus telling yourself on the car ride to practice what you're going to do versus writing it down and then revisiting after what you actually did. If you get three practices a week, how are you maximizing those? It's like you got to have a realistic self-check of whether you're actually doing the things you're supposed to do. If you're a surfer and you want to practice on a certain kind of wave, you have to wait for the ocean to create that kind of wave. It's a very difficult way to get better at something. Whereas in jiu-jitsu, if you just go to practice and whatever practice I'm running that day, you just go along with it. Well, that's the same thing as only taking the waves the ocean gives you. But if you want to get specific and get better at something in a hurry, then you need to create those opportunities. So if your goal is only to escape submissions, then no matter what class I'm teaching, when we roll live, you can give up a lot of submissions and work on your escapes. And then you can get better so much faster because there's intention behind it. And because you're giving yourself something measurable to try to get better at. There's another part of the book, he talks about how when a, a baby grabs your finger, that there's surprising strength, but then when they let go, you don't even feel it because there was never a conscious thought of either thing, right? There's no, there's no interruption or thought of like how they look holding your finger or anything else. It's just grabbing and letting go. You know, when I moved out to Las Vegas, the whole goal was for, you know, me to be the best professional fighter in the world. I started bringing that into every single practice. And that meant that every single situation I got in, I pretended that it was the last round of a championship fight and there was 30 seconds left. And if I lost that position, then I lost the title. And you can imagine how fun that made practice. Um, <laughs> and so I started, you know, I was, I was training like that for about three months. I did that. I, and I was training with tough guys, guys who, won just as often as they lost. I started going down like a really bad place mentally. Same thing, stress and recover, right? So I took some days off and then I came back and I put on my gi because for me, you know, like doing gi jiu-jitsu training versus MMA, it was a little bit more of like my roots and a little more playful for me. And I just decided to have fun and to stop trying to win the positions. Like a magic trick, I had like some of the most success I'd had in months against the same partners. And it was like, oh yeah, it's gotta be fun. There's a story that I tell my students all the time because he's one of the great examples. But when GSP was early on in his pro fight career, he would drive from Montreal to New York to train at Henzo's. Sean Williams, who's a pretty famous black belt now, but at the time he was just a tiny nobody purple belt. So George St. Pierre, pro fighter, blue belt. Sean Williams, you know, 150 pounds soaking wet, purple belt. George talks about how he came down and Sean Williams just handed him his lunch the entire practice. So he drove all the way from Montreal to get good at jiu-jitsu and then got beat up by this tiny little hobbyist and then had to think about it the entire drive back to Montreal. And on the drive, he just decided to quit MMA because he realized he had no future in the sport. He's like, if I can't defeat this guy in practice, what, what possible career could I ever have? Why would I even waste my time pursuing this goal? Without a doubt, he's you know one of the best fighters that's ever done it. He had that day and it's like, oh, okay, so th this happens to all of us and it's part of the process for all of us. And it's okay, you know what I mean? To go in and invest in loss and be okay with that. And when you come out of that and you realize like that this is truly fun, the fighters that I'm working with 
are hard workers, without a doubt. I, I very rarely have to ask for effort, but I do have to remind them all the time that, man, we're gonna have fun doing this. Like, we are going to enjoy it. We are not going to complain about weight cutting. We're not gonna sit there before the fight making ourselves miserable. Like, every time, we're the loosest team in the locker room before the fight because I'm not gonna throw away six hours of our lives every fight weekend, like gritting our teeth, being anxious, because it doesn't make you a better fighter and it takes away the joy. Like you've gotta connect to that joy in order to like be able to, you know, really do your thing. And like when I went to Marcelo's and obviously Josh Waitzkin is a partner with Marcelo in his academy, man, I, st I stayed there for three weeks. I got to meet and train with Josh, which was a blast. I got to thank him for writing the book and all this other stuff. But also the thing that's always stuck out for me is they play games for like the first 30 minutes of class. Like they play dodgeball all the time. And these guys are world champions. And man, Marcelo is having a blast at practice every day and cracks me up. He's such a like happy little dude. When you see that, you just remember like it doesn't always have to be serious. It doesn't always have to be killing yourself like man let's let's you know put in our effort and work hard without a doubt but the more you have fun the more you make it enjoyable the more the journey is a beneficial thing the more you're you're sending your body all these signals to like actually do the things you want it to do i remember one time i was giving a simultaneous chess exhibition in memphis and i realized about halfway through about two hours into the exhibition that i wasn't playing chess i wasn't thinking in chess language with chess notation. I was feeling flow, feeling space left behind like I would in the martial arts. <clears throat> and my, my approach to both arts became barrierless. They became the same. When I was doing Tai Chi, I was playing chess. When I was playing chess, I was doing Tai Chi. And I became fascinated with the idea of the inter interconnectedness of the learning process. And I started to investigate the principles of learning, which to my mind started to transcend specific disciplines and related much more to, to learning itself. Thanks for listening to The Mental Arts, podcast by yours truly, Tracy Huang. Music by Tyler Walker Music. Produced on Anchor.fm. And big appreciation to Cody Malte for his wisdom. If you like the show, hit follow or subscribe to get the next episode. Until next time, good training.